Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. I'm hosting Elizabeth Bernhardt and Marcus Neal from the United Nations Environment Program, and they are here to talk about their new climate adaptation podcast, Resilience, the Global Adaptation Podcast. Yes, a climate podcast that focuses on adaptation. Welcome to the party, Liz and Marcus. We'll learn what they cover, the origins of the podcast, and what's next for them. Also returning to the podcast is Laura Shifter of the Aspen Institute, who gives us an update on K-12 Climate Action, a national initiative to bring or improve climate curricula in our nation's schools. Very important work. They have completed a listening tour and have released a report that should serve as a resource to you if you're looking at bringing better climate change education into your schools. Okay, upcoming episodes. I interviewed the new CEO and president of the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, Manish Bapna. Manish talks about the adaptation work they're doing at NRDC. Also, Cal Inman, founder of Climate Check, comes on to talk about their real estate climate planning tool. I'm going to be in Austin in the new year to record and learn about adaptation and historic preservation. Yes, many great episodes in the pipeline. Okay, let's learn about this new adaptation podcast with Liz and Marcus. Hey, Adapters, we got a special episode for you. Joining me today is Liz Mullen Bernhardt and Marcus Neal from the Global Adaptation Network at the United Nations Environment Program. They're here to talk about their new podcast, Resilience, the Global Adaptation Podcast. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug. Hey, Doug. Fellow podcasters, fellow climate podcasters, fellow adaptation podcasters. This is so rare. So this is very exciting for me. But I just want to let's, we got to keep some structure to this. Liz, could you tell us a bit about your role there at the UN Environment Program? Yeah, thanks so much. And first of all, Doug, I have to give you a shout out because you're like the adaptation podcast pioneer. So Marcus, myself, we all absolutely look up to you and to the the podcast you've been doing such an awesome job on over the last few years. So thank you so much for inspiring us. And thank thank you you. for having us on your show. Thank (laughs) you. So I, um, as you mentioned, I work at the uh, UN Environment Program at our headquarters in beautiful Nairobi, Kenya. And at UNEP, I coordinate something called the Global Adaptation Network. And what GAN does, Uh, It's existed since 2010, and it really exists to collect adaptation knowledge and information and get it out there to the world so that we can help increase action on adaptation from UN member states and other stakeholders. So I I serve in the role of coordinating Global Adaptation Network within UNEP. Okay, Marcus, and what about you? Could you give us a little of your background? Hey, Doug. Yeah, so I'm a climate change communications specialist, and I've been working in the area of climate change storytelling for many, many years. And I've been supporting the United Nations Environment Programme in the production of this podcast, although I am speaking on a personal capacity. Okay, guys. And so, Marcus, you and I have been in a little bit of contact over the years. And, you know, you guys have a great newsletter. I, I'll have links to that when I publish this episode. And I highly encourage my listeners to check that out. You know, there's such a domestic focus for my podcast, obviously, America Adapts. And so it's, it's great that there's this more international focused podcast coming out. And on that note, you guys have just started a podcast. And I'm going to, you know, ask you both, but let's just start with you, Liz. What's the podcast? What is it all about? Well, first of all, the podcast 
I have to say, it was a lot of fun for us to do. And I think for anyone who works in the area of climate change, it can sometimes be a little bit rough going. You know, you get a lot of kind of bad news or think there are lots of things that you could worry about. There are lots of things that that kind of seem yeah, kind of grim. And the reports that not only that we're reading, but also the ones we're writing from the UN. But at the same time, in our line of work and adaptation, we come across incredible stories of people that are on the front lines of adaptation and our own colleagues who are, you know, kind of the talking heads in the UN who are experts in adaptation. And they are such inspirational stories about what's possible, what people are already doing, um, what we can do more of in order to fight climate change. And so we, we just thought it was really neat and inspirational to us to hear those stories. And we wanted to get them out to a wider audience, to the rest of the world, so that they could also hear some of those things that are in- inspiring us as well. And that's really how the, the podcast was born. All right. I want to hear more about how that was born from you, Marcus. Like the sausage making, you're kicking around the idea of a <laughs> podcast, but really what was the catalyst that, okay, we're going to do this and a podcast is a good medium for us to tell these stories. Tell me about that sort of behind the scenes. Well, I've been doing uh, climate change communication for a long time and climate change storytelling going back many years. But obviously, you know, when you're trying to think of, okay, well, how do you reach the the most amount of people? How do you show the most amount of people that adaptation is a really important core strategy for tackling the climate crisis? Well, I think we know that a lot of people are listening to podcasts today. There's sort of a kind of renaissance or sort of golden age of audio. And so we felt that this would be a really interesting platform to get this adaptation out and particularly what we wanted to focus on was adaptation solutions. I think what we found is a lot of people, we've kind of reached this point where a lot of people are convinced that there's a problem, but I think in terms of the climate catastrophe, but I think people are very much in need of solutions now and very much in need of, of something inspiring. And so that was very much the thought behind the podcast. How do we show people the seriousness of, of climate change, but through also providing solutions, tangible solutions? I think adaptation was just such a great fit for that as it's a, a source of so many positive stories where you can see the real life transformation in in people's lives from a position of vulnerability to a position of strength and resilience. And so that's been really fascinating to me. Well, what's great is both of you are knee deep in the issue of adaptation. Climate change, the mitigation give all the attention, but adaptation is getting a lot more attention. And, and I think what my listeners appreciate is that it seems like it lends itself, you're saying, Marcus, to these more positive stories. And Liz, maybe you could speak to this, is that we are kind of lucky, even though the climate impacts are going to be dire, there's people's you know lives on, on the line. But the notion with adaptation, you're not relying on these countries <laughs> agreeing to mitigate their carbon, which we need to happen. We obviously want that to happen. But on adaptation, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of smaller stories that you can tell. So in some ways, the communication part of it is a little bit easier. I mean, what, what do you, would you agree with that, Liz? Yeah, I've been in, I've served in the area of communications for a while. And I, I do think that it's easy to communicate around adaptation because it naturally lends itself to, to storytelling, like you said. And human beings, I think, love to hear stories. We love to hear good and bad stories, right? <laughs> but I think the idea of just making, putting a human face, right, on these issues, talking about what a person who's maybe very much like you and me, what they're doing, right, to take care of their, of where they live and how they eat, right? And, you know, where, where they choose, you know, to send whatever, to, to grow their vegetables or send their kids to school. These, these daily decisions we need to make in our lives. And um, when you hear stories about people that you can relate to, I think it makes you really 
want to act. One of the things I remember Marcus and I were talking about early on years ago, we had both just read this book by Hans Rosling. I don't know if you've read Factfulness, but it was really all about this idea about how we gravitate towards bad news. You know, we, we love to hear bad news, but in fact, oftentimes there are good things happening all around us, right? There's actually a lot, if you change your perspective on things, there's a lot of things that you can be hopeful for or good trends that you're seeing around you, but we're just not, our brains aren't really always programmed to think that way or to look for those nuggets of good stories. And so Marcus and I had, you know, for years, we're kind of kicking around the idea of how can we get some of those positive stories out there in a storytelling, attractive, interesting kind of way. So this podcast is one of those things we thought, yeah, let's see how people react to it. And luckily it's been, it's been super positive. Well, I haven't done many international stories, but I had a chance to go to a community-based adaptation conference in Uganda, and you guys probably have gone to some of these. And I'm in in a taxi with these two women from Malawi at three in, mo- in the morning. I whip out my phone to record, and they're basically explaining to me like, oh, yeah, in our country, two million people are, are at threat of starvation because of drought and what climate change is driving. So uh, from compared to the United States, the stakes couldn't be higher with some of the stories and the stakeholders that you're working with. And so it, it, you, yeah, I think you guys have a, like a harder job in some ways to really articulate that urgency. So I, I, I think I'm, I'm very encouraged that you guys are doing this. And on that note, I'm going to shift back to you, Marcus. Let's just get down to the nuts and bolts of the podcast. What's the model? I mean, if it's out there now, but what, what is it just, oh, is it an hour long interview? What do you guys do? So each episode is about 20 to 25 minutes and it's theme based. So one episode is looking at how to climate proof our food system. We have another episode looking at how to protect coastal areas and islands. So they're theme based episodes. And what we've done is each episode has a an expert voice, if you will, but also a voice from the field. And we thought that this was really important to the overall kind of global feel of the podcast. In one episode, you can hear from a El Salvadorian coffee farmer and his struggle to build resilience in his coffee farm. Then in another episode, you can hear from a lady in the Gambia using early warning systems to, to prepare people about oncoming climate threats. So in each case, we've tried to find these local voices, these community-based voices, and then kind of blend that together with our expert voice within each episode. And Liz, do you have anything sort of to add to that as you, are you guys there brainstorming questions or like, how do you, you come up with these guests around these themes, but is it just, do you have people outside of just you two or it's like, oh, you really need to talk to this person? How do you kind of get it all working together? Yeah, I was going to jump in to say that you know some of the people that we chose to speak to are people we knew already from projects that we're working on through UNEP, or they might be young champions of the earth that UNEP has already written about, you know, written a story about maybe. So we, we knew the background of, of many of the people that we chose to interview. And others are, are kind of friends and colleagues of ours that we've worked with for, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. Two things I think were really cool about that format. One is well, first of all, it was, it was really cool to be able to talk to some of our colleagues and hear more about their personal stories. Like, I don't know, there's an episode we did with on food, and it's with Eduardo Mansour of, of the Food and Agriculture Organization. And I've known him forever, it feels like, but I never knew that, you know, he lived in Mozambique, you know, he worked with mushroom farmers and as a student and that his family and wife were from there. And you start to learn all these really personal stories about their passions and why they're doing what they're doing. And that's really cool to hear. So I love that part of it with our so-called experts, right? I say so-called because 
because one of the things that was really coolest for me, the other thing was, as we talked to people in the field, right, in the global south, we realized that, you know, these people aren't, you know, they're not people that are just sitting around who don't really know what's happening to them and don't really care and are super helpless and kind of victims, right? These are people who are actually doing incredible stuff and they know exactly how much, you know, rainfall is normal for their region and they know exactly when to plant those crops. You know, they know exactly how to build that building to withstand higher winds. And, you know, so you actually, you get all this local knowledge from from people who understand how they're really taking action to fight climate change where they are, right? And that's so cool. We have so much to learn from people like that. And that's that's an amazing message. You know, the, the Global South being able to kind of teach some things to the global north, right? Like, I mean, that's what happens when you start to share these stories and bring these kinds of people together. So that to me was one of the coolest parts of the of the whole thing. So I did get that latest episode in my inbox this morning. I have to drive my son to school and it takes about 12 minutes. And so I, I make my son listen to it. So we listened to this morning and it's 12 minutes there and then 12 minutes to get back home. So I pretty much get the whole episode within my commute for his school. Perfect. My son just has this kind of blank look on his face, but that's okay. He's a 13-year-old and he's learning a little bit. So Marcus, let's it's out there. Mm-hmm. I think you guys have you've published uh, the multiple episodes now. What's the response been internally, externally? What kind of feedback are you getting? It's been really nice, Doug. So I think a, a lot of uh, well, it's been interesting to see that a lot of other people doing podcasts have also reached out to us. We've received a lot of requests to appear on other podcasts. We've also received a lot of requests for people to come and speak on our podcast, which is quite interesting. So uh, we've had you know responses from World Bank, FAO, asking you know could we get our expert on nice. to the podcast? And so that's been really nice. I think we can see lots of collaborations and, and synergies building. And obviously here we are today. So I think it's been well received, but I, I would really have to let others be the judge of, of that. Oh, well, come on. You can take your victory lap. All right. So that, that's exciting. People are reaching out to you, but you guys right now are only committed to six episodes, right? First off, this is a part of the podcast where I kind of give you grief about that. <laughs> what well, That's the goal right now, but is especially since it's out there, are you, are you guys already thinking, all right, we got to come back and do this again? Because you know, some podcasts do seasons they do like all right we're gonna for three months we'll be podcasting we'll take a break what's the thinking right now i think that there would be i think we definitely have lots of stories we can tell right so there's lots and lots and on really an endless supply of material i think that we could turn into future podcast episodes. I would say that the last few months, we had an idea of getting this podcast out, these first uh, six episodes out for COP, right? Just with with so much attention on the, the conference in Glasgow, we really wanted to get the series out and the launch, launch it in the run up to COP. And it was really intense over the last few months to do so. Now that I think we've gotten more of a rhythm on how to do it, how to schedule the interviews, how to find the time, right? How to script the whole thing and who to do that with. Um, I think we could do more episodes faster in the future, but probably it's good to just take a little break and then, you know, regroup, uh, evaluate the impact of this podcast and then and see how to take it further. But I mean, so far, the interest has seemed really great. So I think you could see more podcasts like this coming out from the UN for sure. That's great. And from what Marcus said, you had other people reaching out wanting to be guests and such. You'll have an endless supply of, of content. My advice to you too, is you guys, if you decide to do that, 
Stick to adaptation. I, people come out of the woodwork wanting me to talk about mitigation or even sustainability. And, you know, there are linkages and such, but there's podcasts out there that talk about those mm. things. And so I hope you guys will stick to adaptation because I think there's a need to just focus in that, even though it's called resilience, the global adaptation, you'd be surprised and there's going to be some gravity kind of pulling on you to, oh, well, maybe we'll talk a bit more about mitigation. And you got to make a judgment call on a particular episode. But I think it's worked for me. And the fact that you guys are, you have these six episodes are going to be out there. They're going to be evergreen, but at the same time, building up an audience, it takes consistent, you'll see the growth will be slow and steady. And so I that's, this is my pep talk of like, yeah, let's turn it back around and get yourselves podcasting on a regular basis. And just some feedback too on the podcast itself. It's great. 24 minutes is nice. I'm sure plenty of my listeners are like, Doug, good Lord, it's an hour long conversation. What are you thinking? That's just what I do. But you guys, the two of you, you guys have great chemistry. And to be honest, I want to hear more from you two. I don't know if there's a chance for you guys to kind of dig into maybe some of the interviews that you did, but you're going to be identified with the podcast. You two are the hosts and they're going to be most associated with you. And I would just encourage you to have as much spontaneous back and forth content, bookending all these other stories that you're telling because you guys are really good. It's just, I want to hear more of it. So thanks so much, Doug. I mean, we would love to, awesome. we'd love to make more as well. I think we've really enjoyed the, the first series. It's definitely be our desire to do more. Thank you so much, Doug, because I think Marcus and I struggled with, you know, the question of, will people really want to listen to us? You know, we sound really goofy. <laughs> uh, you know, do, are people really going to want to hear what we have to say? And so it's really nice to hear that. Yeah, you do kind of want to hear what we have to say. <laughs> so thanks for that. Well, it's it, you'll you'll hear feedback too, because like early on, I'll be like, oh, you know, the, the weather. And I mean, I'll, I'll hear from my list. Stop with the chitter chatter, get to the point and, you know, and I'll keep you honest. So if you, you too, let's say you too are reflecting on the interviews, you're giving them actual substantive content. That's good. And, and if it's in a spontaneous sort of non-scripted way, people are going to eat that up. But if you are just sitting there going, oh, what's the weather like in Kenya this week? You're going to get your head spit off and rightly so, because people don't want to hear that. Trust you me. I've, I've learned you do those kind of things. So, okay, here's a question for Marcus. Well, you could both answer this, but I'm start with Marcus. So you guys have started your podcast and I appreciate the, the nice plug for America Daps. When I started the podcast, I felt like it was in the wilderness when it comes to the issue of adaptation. It's been like five years. And so I'm like a grandfather in the space, but what what voices do you think are missing in the podcast space around adaptation? You guys are talking globally. I'm talking domestically, but I always, I'm always like, if some new podcast comes online, I'm like, great. Every host is different. There's all different stories. And so what do you think is missing out there? To be fair, I think just coming back to what we were saying earlier, I think just generally a very solution oriented approach to climate change communications is needed. So I think that's at least what we've sort of tried to do. That's the, the gap that we've tried to fill, in, in other words. What it is, uh, in many ways, is that a lot of the conversation has, has been dominated by emissions reduction, which is so, so important and absolutely vital. But I think this other side of the coin has been neglected. So that was very much the reason be behind setting up the podcast. So if I was to say <laughs> what podcast would be missing, well, before we produced our one, then probably our one, I guess. Good answer. Good answer. Liz, do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I honestly think that half of what we've done in the podcast is, is almost standard fare because what we've done when we reach out to expert voices, right, that's pretty typical. People working in policy, people working in some kind of high level, well-known 
position, right? The other half of what we did with the podcast, I think are exactly the kind of people that we need to hear more from. You know, we, we talked to an architect, right? We talked to a farmer, we talked to a chef, we talked to a forestry officer, right? These are honestly we, a guy planting mangroves, but you know, these are honestly just average salt of the earth people who are doing amazing things that we need to do to adapt, right? And you wouldn't otherwise know them if you didn't hear them in this podcast. And that's the kind of people I think that that we need to hear from, that we need to hear a lot more from. So, you know, get the farmers in the world out, get, who knows, fashion designers, get, you know, get the person who's building rooftop gardens, you know, like get those people to talk about why, why they're doing things differently. What does that look like? Now that to me is really interesting. Very cool. Let's talk about if people want to listen to this. And Marcus, what would you recommend? I mean, is it important that they start at the very beginning or each episode standalone? And how can they listen to it beyond? I mean, if you're a sophisticated podcast listener, you know how to figure it out, but just put a plug on how they can find it. Yeah, I think we've deliberately created it in a way so that each episode can be a standalone. But I would recommend really starting from the beginning and going through it. So you would find it on www.unep.org forward slash GAN. That's G-A-N. So that's www.unep.org forward slash GAN. You can also find the uh, podcast on Spotify, on all the, all the major podcast platforms, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and we're also releasing them on YouTube as well. Okay. And great. And so I asked this of all my listeners. I'm going to ask both of you. So one of you gets to think about it for a little bit, but the other one has to just come up the top of their head. If you could recommend a guest to come on my podcast, who would it be? Liz? I don't know if you've interviewed Catherine Hayhoe yet, but if you haven't, I'm pretty fascinated with her latest book, Saving Us. That's somebody you should get on. I don't know. If, have you talked to her yet, Doug? I did, but it's been a while. But boy, she's tough to <laughs> to, to schedule these days. I bet. She, yeah, she came on. I was very grateful. And she's plugged my podcast, which has been fantastic. But she, her, you know, her, I think she does 12 interviews a day. So I'd love to get her back on. It's a great recommendation. But is there any any kind of an international or someone like that you think might be good? I don't know if you've seen our episode that where we talked to Bjark Angles, but that's an amazing guy to talk to. If you haven't spoken with Bjark, he's got the, the coolest ideas. He's kind of like living in the world of the Jetsons, you know, like I've got kids as well. I've got a 13-year-old son as well, by the way, Doug. He sort of depicts this world and is creating a world that's living in the future that's so cool that you would want to live there too. And I think that Bjark is an amazing guy to talk to. Got somebody I could recommend. Marcus, who would you recommend? I think I would think about getting some more like maybe creative types onto the podcast. So we talk to a lot of experts and academics and scientists and things like that. But I also think thinking outside of the box in terms of poets or or authors and artists, things like that, I think would be quite, quite an interesting angle to take. Okay. Those are great recommendations. You know, it's been a treat having you guys on. I love promoting other climate podcasts. I wish you luck. And I hope you guys sort of look long-term at what you're doing here, because there's a need to tell these stories, especially from the international adaptation point of view. And I hope we can just stay close and be colleagues and toss ideas and guests and all sorts of things at each other. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Doug. Thanks so much, Doug. It's a real pleasure talking to you and keep up the good work. Hey, Adapters, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Liz and Marcus. Definitely check out their podcast. I have links in my show notes. Okay, let's jump into a brief conversation I had with Laura Shifter of the Aspen Institute, who'll catch us up on the activities of K-12 Climate Action. 
Hey, adapters. I'm talking with Laura Shifter. Laura is a senior fellow in the Energy and Environment Program at the Aspen Institute, and she's a lecturer of education at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Doug. It's great to be here with you again. All right. So I've had you on before. We were talking about climate change education. It was such a fantastic episode. We really dug into what you're doing there with K-12 Climate Action, and you've been quite busy since then. But before we talk about some of the more recent things that have been going on with you, let's give people a reminder. What is K-12 Climate Action? K-12 Climate Action is an initiative of the Aspen Institute. What we've done is we've launched a commission, which is co-chaired by former Secretary of Education John King and former Governor and EPA Administrator Christy Todd Whitman. And we've really brought together education leaders, civil rights leaders, young leaders, and environment leaders to come together to learn about the needs and opportunities for the education sector to take climate action. And they've been working over the past year to learn more about those opportunities and come together behind some policy recommendations to really mobilize the education sector for climate actions, solutions, and environmental justice. Okay, fantastic. And yeah, I, I love that conversation. We were talking about, even in your curricula, you were talking about resilience and adaptation that, that was covered. And so often you when you we talk about climate change education, it really does focus on the mitigation side and carbon side, which is important. But I appreciate that you guys really had this 360 degree approach to it. So yeah, just kudos to you guys. Yeah, adaptation is is critically important. I think one of the things that we've seen even over the past couple months is how much climate impacts are affecting schools and disrupting learning. And so really centering the needs around adaptation when we talk about climate change is essential. Okay, so I brought you back on and you like I said earlier, you've been very busy. And so we're going to talk about two things. So let's talk first about this listening tour that you guys did. And I think Pretty much most of it was virtual, but please describe that. And then we're going to get into a a new report that just came out that talks about the work that you've been doing. Yeah, so we started the listening tour one year ago, almost exactly. And what we did is our commissioners heard from people across the country. We heard from an educator from Oklahoma to superintendent in Philadelphia. We heard from students in Salt Lake City to after-school providers in Hawaii. And what we did over the course of the listening tour is we held sessions around various topics to learn more about why schools should move to climate action, what they can do in terms of mitigation, what they can do in terms of adaptation, what they can do to support teaching and learning, and how we can really mobilize the sector more for action. And so each of our listening sessions kind of focused on a different topic, learning from people on the ground about more about what best practices are occurring and more about where there are needs and opportunities for policies to really help support and scale this work. Okay, I want to dig into some of these. Uh, we don't have to go through them all, but let's give an, you said an example that, that you might focus on a particular subject. What would one be and how did that play out? Was this like a whole day event? Would it be like a two hour session that you're doing with people? And so the people participating, what was the diversity of people that actually participated that were there to, you know, I guess from out in the communities? Overall, we held six official sessions and then we had some additional kind of informal sessions off of that. But in our official sessions, they were about an hour and a half virtual sessions. We had panels of four to six panelists come on and talk more about their experiences for a short time. And then our commissioners were able to engage them in conversation. So 
take, for example, our adaptation listening session, which I know would be critically important to you. Yes. Some of the speakers that we had talking for that adaptation session, we had the superintendent from Miami-Dade Public Schools, and he joined to talk to us more about how Miami has dealt with better preparing the city and the school district for hurricanes themselves, but then also dealt with patterns of climate migration that have occurred, for instance, after Hurricane Maria, and the school district actually had a big influx of students come from Puerto Rico in the middle of the year to the school district, and how the school district had to think about planning for things, both in terms of addressing this increase in enrollment And also then critically providing social emotional supports for students who have just experienced a significant trauma. We also had in that session, we had a school board president from Santa Barbara, California, who talked to us about how she led an initiative within her school board to create solar microgrids at her schools within her community, resulting from the fact that they had just had a mudslide within the community that really shut people off from power for a while. And so they were really thinking in Santa Barbara about how they could build resilience and the opportunity to leverage schools, given that they are in every community as hubs of resilience. And so they really led an effort to create those solar microgrids within Santa Barbara there. In that session, we also heard from an educator, a teacher of the year from the U.S. Virgin Islands. And one of the things that she has really been doing with her science class is helping students learn about climate adaptation issues that they can address within their local community. So they've built a rain garden on their school with the students specifically to address some of the issues around stormwater flooding and how the rain gardens can help absorb some of the additional water to prevent flooding in the surrounding community. So that's just a sample of some of the types of folks that we heard from um, and one of the session topics we dug into and happy to talk any more about those too. Well, I'm always curious on who participates in these things. And so it was virtual, but when you're doing the announcement for it and you're letting people know, like, is this going out to school districts? And were you looking for, I'm assuming some regions probably didn't participate much at all or at all. How did that kind of work? You're like, okay, we know we have these people on the phone. Did you have a sense of regionally who was participating? Yeah. So for with each of the sessions, we worked with a wide range of organizations, educators to kind of gather a large list of folks who are doing work across the country in these areas. And then what we tried to do is essentially map out all of our listening sessions to ensure geographic diversity, demographic diversity, perspective diversity in terms of, you know, student versus educator versus school leader versus researcher. And we kind of looked at it to be a little bit like a puzzle where we were putting pieces together to help each of the sessions build a narrative where we felt like the commission would then have the opportunity to learn about a diverse set of these issues going forward. And so that's how we mapped out who was presenting. And then we also reached out to various members. We got guest blogs submitted from different folks across the country to provide their input. We did call out to the public to submit through a form on our website what they saw as the critical issues that schools needed to address. We did work a lot with some of the organizations that represent school leaders, that represent school administrators, to talk to them about what they are hearing from their communities to really pull together a fabric about what the needs are. 
Okay. So I'm sure there was probably a lot of positive energy that you guys were out there and getting this feedback, but I think we both know not an insignificant number of people don't even think climate change is happening. So the notion that you would bring it into school curricula might, I guess, irk them to put it one way. Did, was that voice there or did you just not, you know, I've been in situations where we're not going to even give the sort of skeptics a platform because it's just lowering the, like, I guess the conversation, how did that factor in? So in terms of most of the people that we talked to, we actually didn't hear that narrative a ton. One of the educators that we brought into the conversation, she is a middle school science teacher in Oklahoma, and she did reflect upon the fact that she had heard a lot of pushback within her community when she started teaching climate change in her classroom. But what she was even more surprised about was she actually got far more support than she had ever realized that she was going to have. And and ultimately, teaching climate change in schools pulls really well as an issue that people care about and want taught, whether Democrat or Republican. And so I think ultimately what we heard from her, from her experience, you know, you ground it in the local issues and what people are seeing within their community. She was talking about in particular, people having a direct tie to the land within Oklahoma as being centrally important. You tie climate impacts into what people are seeing and you're able to bring more people in. Well, that's encouraging. And I'm glad that she had that experience. I would probably argue that there would be a lot of hostile school boards to that. And on that note, you guys helped develop the climate curricula. Here are the things that these are resources for teachers, but I think equally important for those areas that maybe aren't as gung-ho to teach it, you almost need a curricula on how to introduce the curricula. Is that even a part of what you guys do, the challenges of actually even bringing it in independent of like the science that you might be teaching? So I think from our perspective, what we're really focusing on are the policies. So what are the policies needed in place to do this stuff well? You know, the next generation science standards has really robust components in place for thinking about how to teach science curriculum. And there are other people that are really working on how to build additional curriculum around it. There are career and technical education programs that are really thinking about things like how are we preparing people for clean jobs or jobs in adaptation. And so we're not developing curriculum specifically. What we're doing is saying for schools to be able to do this, they need these policy supports in place, things like professional development for educators. So if you are putting a curriculum out there, you're providing support for all the educators within your district to learn how to use the curriculum and to build their capacity in doing the teaching. Okay. Well, that was great that you guys went through that effort. I'm sure it was probably fascinating for you just to hear that feedback and for the commission too. The pivot there is that I think as a result of that listening tour is that you came up with a report. I don't don't know exactly what you're calling it, an action report, but that just came out, I think, September 21st. Yep. That came out September 21st. We released our action plan and what we've really done within the action plan is we have specific policy recommendations for what local school districts can do, what state governments can do and what the federal government can do to really support and scale climate action in schools. So like how long is the report? How do you recommend people kind of use the report? So the way that we really start the report is we focus our report initially on the overarching framing issues that we believe it's critical for the education sector to address. So thinking about it, we talk about the needs around mitigation and how we think about school infrastructure, school transportation, school food and how to really think about reducing the environmental footprint of that sector. 
Um, Within the adaptation section and framing, we talk about what the issues are in terms of how climate change has impacted schools and around things like health impacts, extreme weather, learning disruptions, and what some strategies are in place to help school districts address needs around adaptation. Within the education section, what we really think about there is how we can support teaching and learning to address climate change and thinking about that from the standards themselves on things like science, as well as cross-curricular standards and thinking about career and technical education. And then we have a section that really talks about how we have this critical opportunity that being at a moment of transition where we're really mobilizing the education sector to address this work, we can lead with equity-focused work right now to ensure that communities of color, low-income communities, both in urban and rural areas, are really centered in this transition so that we ensure that as we're creating opportunities for communities to get things like electric school buses, we're leading with the communities that are frequently most under-resourced. You sort of mentioned some of those, but I mean, the report has a series of recommendations and people can go in there and there's specific things that they can do. So the audience for it sometimes can be tricky. So is it down at the school board level or their school teachers or it's like, okay, no, it's for state education officials or is it for everybody? How does that work? Yes. What we're really doing with it right now is we we really are focusing on the opportunity for everyone to take action in this work and our recommendations for the local level. Those could apply to superintendents. They could apply to school board members. And what we are really calling on the local level to do is recognize the opportunity to prioritize this issue when they're talking about the needs of the education sector. And what we're pushing for local school districts to do, similar to what a lot of cities have done across the country, is really develop local climate action plans that consider needs around mitigation, adaptation, education, and equity together to create a plan for their school district. What we're looking at in terms of the state and the federal level then is both calling on the state and the federal level to also prioritize this issue, recognize the opportunity for them to really be leaders in this space and take this work forward, and then figure out the policies and supports that are appropriate to each level to really help support school districts in developing and implementing these local climate action plans. So for instance, one of the big things that's being debated this week is an infrastructure package in Congress. And there could be some key provisions in the infrastructure package that could help school districts actually take action on climate change. And so the bipartisan infrastructure bill that has up to $5 billion in it for schools to use that funding to transition to electric school buses Currently, although the fate of this is unknown in the Build Back Better plan that passed the House, there was $80 billion put in that for school infrastructure, which can be used for schools to do things like adopt renewable energy and build climate resilience within that perspective. So there are really tangible things that the federal government can do. And and what we really do in our action plan is, is outline what those steps are for both the federal and state level. So the report's out there and it's it's for use for many different levels of people involved with schools. So if someone wants to get started, what would you recommend using that report? Yeah. So one of the things that we have on our report website 
is we have this key questions to get started document. And so if you're in an area where you want to see your school district start to take action on climate change, what that really does is it asks some key questions like, does your school district already have a sustainability plan in place? You know, what are the local climate risks that your school district experiences? to start having some initial conversations within your community about where there's opportunities for your school district to develop those local climate action plans. This document also then provides resources to much more specific implementation supports. So once you start getting going on your planning and you say, oh, our school district really wants to add solar panels on our schools, we connect then to an organization called Generation 180 who has really robust implementation to support to help school districts find financing for solar and talk through different opportunities to help school districts actually add solar panels on their buildings, add solar panels in their parking lots, or utilize solar farms within their community. That's fantastic. All these resources that you guys have been working on are now available. And I guess just to be more timely, folks are gathering in Glasgow to for COP26. And even though you're focusing more on the domestic side of things, do you guys look to what's happening there where I'm seeing every day, you know, youth activists, obviously education is going to be a big part of what they're asking people to be doing in these international negotiations. What are you watching with COP26? Yeah, I think, you know, what we're really watching for with COP26 is how policymakers are prioritizing and including education within the conversation. First and foremost, we want to make sure that people recognize the need to build the capacity of our society to take action on climate change, and that will require the mobilization of the education sector in that work. So the UN has historically recognized this as a critical goal and has this objective called the Action for Climate Empowerment Objective, which really is about civic action. It's about education and it's those various components. So what we're looking for is how world leaders are talking about that issue. What we're also really hoping to do within our perspective is we've really created a plan for the United States to be a leader in this work. And our hope coming out of this is a recognition that the the United States has an opportunity to show the world how we can actually support our education sector in doing this. And we're really looking you know, to have outlined that here in our action plan. And so what we're hoping can come out of this as well is greater emphasis and prioritization of the Biden administration to really seize the opportunity for America to be a world leader and how we can mobilize the education sector for climate action. Fantastic. What's next for you? What's going to be on your immediate plate going forward? So some of our next steps, what we're really looking to do is we're, we're focused on pushing out the action plan over the next six months. And we're meeting with various organizations, providing webinars, disseminating the action plan to different networks. And we are also going to be creating some toolkits, advocacy toolkits related to the action plan. We're working with some parent organizations to create a toolkit that will be geared toward parents. We're working with some student organizations to create a toolkit that will be geared toward students. And what those tools kids can then do is parents can use it within their local community to really push more for action. So those are kind of our immediate next steps. What we're looking to kind of continue to bang the drum on, I guess I should say, is, is really push for additional federal advocacy on this issue from the Biden administration and try and work with the Department of Education to be a leader on these issues. I think there's a lot of interest in the Department of Education taking a more of a leadership role in this space. And so I think we're going to continue to work 
and support conversations there. And we're also working to talk to various superintendents across the country to hear more about whether they're interested in in kind of taking this on and, and making a more robust stance on taking climate action and figuring out opportunities for us to support superintendents in this work. Okay. Laura, you know, I I love what you're doing. You guys are playing the long game on climate change and that's critical, especially in a country like the United States or such, you know, across the board on how people think about the issue. And so I really love what you guys are doing. And I'm sure you and I will have another conversation as you guys keep doing what you're doing, but thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Doug. It's always fun to talk to you and I look forward to continue the conversation ahead. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Marcus and Liz for coming on the podcast to share what they're doing with their new podcast. As we discussed, there is unlimited content for them to cover. So many international adaptation stories unfolding. It's a limited six-part series, but I hope they keep it up. In fact, and they don't know I'm going to be saying this, but reach out to them, listen, and let them know you enjoy the series and you want to keep hearing more. If they hear from enough people, they'll see there is a demand for their work. Good luck, guys. And thanks to Laura for updating us on K-12 climate action. Improving how climate change is taught in our schools is going to be critical in the years and decades ahead. People are graduating school without even understanding the basics of science, which puts them in a hole to understand and respond to issues like climate change and pandemics. I'm also concerned how climate change will roll out across school districts around the country. We'll see where more educated and progressive districts embrace learning about climate change and more conservative areas labeling climate change too controversial to teach their kids. I think the controversy around critical race theory can offer a useful roadmap on how easily things could blow up. I'm not here to provide commentary on if critical race theory should be taught or in what form, but as an aside, read between the lines. I host a climate podcast. I think you know where I stand. That said, school boards are becoming controversial and at times potentially violent places, which is insane and sad. I can't imagine a lot of school district boards will want to pick a fight over an issue like climate change if similar challenges pop up. We'll have two systems of climate curricula in this country and it will further divide us. I don't have an easy answer, but I think the U.S. Department of Education should be involved. Start throwing some weight around. Creating a uniform standard of climate education could be helpful and I think K-12 Climate Action is really doing a nice job normalizing what should be a non-controversial subject to teach. Well, I'll follow this topic closely, and I encourage you parents out there, speak up at board meeting, show your support for climate change curricula to be integrated into your kids' schools. If you're new to this podcast and you're catching up on all things adaptation, definitely take a look in the podcast library. We have covered a lot of ground that will catch you up on on many of the most important adaptation issues coming up. Managed retreat, climate reparation, climate impacts on the LGBTQ community, climate finance, national security, indigenous issues, and adaptation, legal implications associated with adaptation, and nature-based solutions to resilience. That's just scratching the surface. Definitely take a look in the podcast archive. Okay, some final housekeeping. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. My listeners, I frequently go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify these experts that represent the work you're doing. I've done these with NRDC, University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, University of Florida, and some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation many groups work into their communication strategies. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there is a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. 
or that's my opinion. So please reach out and let's have a conversation around this so you can learn more. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. I speak to a lot of different folks. I've done some keynote presentations. They are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences and adaptation. Check me out at americadaps.org. And for my regular listeners, podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug the podcast on your favorite social media feeds. I'm everywhere. I always reshare if you connect to me. I can't stress enough how important word of mouth recommendations are for podcast growth. I know you're sitting there with your phone in your hand. Just go do it. Share this episode. I know you want to. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. It is the highlight of what I do. I've had some recent conversations. People said they wanted to just check in. We brainstorm around some ideas and they shared their own experiences. And so, yes, I love it. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.